Well, I'm excited to uh, start this series. I'm Pastor Jonathan, one of the pastors on staff here. The series, Honest to God. And well, over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at real people who prayed very real, honest to God prayers. And as we talk about prayer, it reminds me of a, of a story that I once heard about uh, two friends. They were hun- hunters, hunting buddies. And uh, they went out into the wild, into the woods, and, and they were hunting, and all of a sudden they came across a grizzly bear. Well, the grizzly bear smelled them, saw them, took off after them. They, <clears throat> they ran for their lives and were able to make it up into a tree. Well, the one guy was a little religious, and so his, his friend was like, hey, if there's a time, now's the time to pray. He's like, okay, well, I can do that. And so... He says, I want you to bow your head, close your eyes, fold your hands. He said, now, Lord, change the heart of this bear. And Lord, make this a Christian bear, amen. And as soon as he said amen, the bear stopped in its tracks, knelt down, folded its paws, and said, God is great, God is good, let us thank him for this food. Well, I know when we talk about prayer, there's a couple of things that, that tend to cross our minds. And one is, you know, wow, four weeks on prayer? Mm. I already feel guilty. <laughs> I know it's not something that I do enough or, or, or know enough about. And, and I know I need to pray more. Or, or maybe it's, boy, four weeks on prayer. <laughs> Boring. And I, I know that because at times I've felt that way. Uh, there have been times in my life that prayer just wasn't something I, I practiced very well. And the truth is, if I haven't experienced what it means to connect with my Heavenly Father and Creator and watch Him respond in my life, yeah, prayer can be pretty mundane. It can become just another religious exercise, something we know we're supposed to do, but we're not, it's not something driven by a passion for God. Not only that, but prayer can be confusing. I mean, I I tried pray, I tried praying, and I prayed for something, and I prayed and prayed, and I didn't get what I wanted. If God is all knowing, why should I talk to him about stuff he already knows? Why do I need to pray? And the reality is prayer can be measured and uh, we become scared to pray. We don't feel like we, we have the right words to say. We're afraid of rejection from God. We, we can become timid in approaching him because we, we don't know the right way or the right words. I remember <clears throat> hearing a woman call into a talk show to express her fear of, of praying to God as her father. Because her own father had had abused her emotionally with words like, you'll never measure up. You can't do anything right. It's all your fault. What do you want me to do about it? And she said when she felt like when she went to prayer and addressed God as father that she was going to feel that rejection all over again. And her prayer became measured. But prayer can also become mechanical. I remember as a kid, there was a time when I thought that I had to have the right order to pray in the right order for God to hear me. And so it started with praise, praising God a lot. 
And then, then, then I went to confession. I had to confess a lot of sins and, and had, to feel, had to feel really bad. Uh, and, and, then, and then after praising and confessing, then, then I could ask for a few things. But then I, I needed to thank God for what he was going to do and, and things like that. And I had to always make sure that, that I was praising and confessing and thanking more than I was asking. <laughs> and as a result, my prayer life became a formula a formula for pleasing God. I was praying mechanically. Now, we can certainly use uh, prayer models like the acronym ACTS, ACTS. You know, adoration, confession, thanks, supplication is a a big word for for asking for stuff. We can use those kind of things, but we just need to make sure we're not letting it get in the way of us truly talking to God. You see, prayer becomes mechanical when we look at it as something we have to do to keep God happy. I become, it just simply becomes a ritual or or religious moment. The Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And and, and this can become uh, just very routine and ritualistic if we're saying Memorize words without meaning. If we're not thinking about what we're praying. And see, when we were on vacation, I went to a non-denominational service on the beach just to check it out. And, you know, I've got to say that uh, church on the beach is pretty, pretty cool. <laughs> but the pastor at one point in his message said something like, if you want to be healed, you have to be blessed by the right people praying for you. And I heard that and I thought about my mom. See, my mom struggles a lot with different medical conditions and she was just recently told by a family member that she hasn't been healed because she needs to quote more Bible verses in her prayers. So for people like this, the the secret to prayer is finding the right words, the right formula, the the right people the, the pray for you. But I don't know about you, when when I talk to my wife or when I talk to a good friend, I'm not looking for a formula. I'm not looking for just the right words. I'm sharing my heart. And so I think when we feel the pressure to pray a certain way, prayer can become mundane. And growing up in church, prayer meetings were the dullest part of my church experience. I mean, especially when you contrast it to the yearly annual Sunday school picnic in which we swam all day and played games and ate lots of watermelon and corn on the cob, and the only prayer was a short one, thanking God for the food. And because I thought prayer meetings were boring, that, that translated into to me as a kid that, well, prayer's boring. I think a lot of that had to do with the way we went about conducting prayer time. Part of it was the way we prayed. Most of it, if not all of it, honestly, was more about my maturity. Finally, I think prayer can become a means to an end. I mean, if I want something, I... I need to ask for it. I need to pray. And then, and then God becomes like this cosmic vending machine. If I put in the right amount of change and punch in the right numbers, I get what I want. And if it gets hung up or if I don't get what I want, what do I do? I kick the machine. I shake it. And then I'm reluctant to ever go back to it again. Isn't there more to prayer than this? 
I mean, most of our prayer lives revolve around trying to get God to do something for us. But what if we saw prayer in a different way? What if prayer was a way to get so close to God that, that he lives his life through me? That approach to prayer is a lot different than trying to control God or manipulate him or, or persuade him to do certain things for me. And it feels less about asking for something and more about enjoying someone, enjoying the relationship. As I get to know God better and learn to trust his intentions for me, what I desire most falls in line with, with what he desires, and I end up asking for what we both want. I mean, have you ever watched a, a child at, at, a, <clears throat> at a store, and maybe they're with dad, and, and dad slips behind the, the corner a little bit to grab something, and in that instant, the child it looks around, and where's dad? Where's mom? And it becomes their primary function at that time. I got to find dad. I got to see mom. I wonder if we approach prayer with that kind of, I must be with you kind of focus. You see, real prayer is talking honestly with God in the context of your relationship with him. We just finished a series on friendship, and, and the one thing that, that Pastors Dan and Adam emphasized is that great friendships start with the greatest friend we've got, God. God knows us at our very worst, and yet he still loves us. He made it possible to, to live life with him now and, and forever through Jesus. Jesus took what separated us from God, our sin, and he became the perfect sacrifice so that the wages of our sin, a debt we could never pay, could be paid perfectly and completely through his life, death, and resurrection. He wants us to talk to him. But for most of us, prayer can be difficult and intimidating. But I think at the end of the day, what God wants most are not canned prayers or flowery petitions or specific formulas or manipulating methods. God wants your heart. He wants us to be honest about our lives, about ourselves, our, our dreams, our doubts, and just talk to him. He wants our authentic worship. The truth is, some of our greatest prayers will be prayed in our most desperate moments. Going into my junior year of college, I was feeling pretty good about myself. Um, I had just had an amazing summer in Africa, and God had done some incredible things and answered prayer in some in pretty uh, unexpected ways. And I was encouraged and, and excited and, and thinking, wow. Just looking forward, how is God going to use me? Well, I was a chaplain uh, for the, our junior class. Uh, I was an RA, a resident advisor on our freshman floor, and I was taking my first seminary class, Greek. I was excited about what God was going to, how God was going to use me that year. I was excited about, wow, God, you know, make me great. And in a sense, it was like, God, I, I remember actually praying this prayer. God, I don't want to be average. Lord, make me extraordinary. I want to be extraordinary for you. And I was excited. But God had other plans. 
Plans that, that as I look back, mirror a lot of what we're going to look at today through the life of the Old Testament prophet Elijah. So you can look up here on the screen or you can turn to your Bible or uh, device and turn to 1 Kings chapter, uh, chapter 18. Now 1 Kings is sandwiched between 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Chronicles. I think one of the things I, I love about our Bibles is it's just filled with accounts of, of men and women who seem larger than life. Men like David and Moses and Esther and Daniel and Paul. And, and they seem larger in life, and yet we realize these were real people. Real people with real struggles and real relationships. People just like us, living moment by moment, step by step, with an extraordinary God. Elijah was a man like that. He was God's man to stand alone in the gap during a time of crisis. He seems larger than life, and yet the Bible reminds us in James 5.17, Elijah was a man just like you or me. In 1 Kings 17, Elijah appears on the scene from out of the blue, and he's simply introduced as Elijah the Tishbite from Tishba in, in Gilead. Well, the problem is no one today knows where Tishba is. In fact, the town was so small they had to close the zoo because the chicken died. <laughs> but Tishba was in Gilead, and we do know about Gilead, and Gilead was this rugged and wild region, mostly uninhabited. But the people were, were typically rough and rugged uh, uh, shepherds who appreciated their solitude. And so Elijah in his garment of camel fur would have been a stark contrast to the town folk below. So when Elijah approached the king in the palace, he was the hillbilly in the White House. His name means the Lord is my God, and he stands as an example of an extraordinary man with rugged edges who submitted his life to God. He stands as an example of faith and prayer. Again, we read in James 5, he was a man just like us. He, he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. God was doing amazing things through Elijah, but Elijah didn't have it easy. See, for well over 100 years, the Israelites had lived under the reign of three kings, Saul, David and his son Solomon. And they each had their unique faults, but they were great leaders. In fact, under the leadership of David and Solomon, uh, the nation became, the kingdom became one of the richest, blessed nations in the world. Surrounding nations feared the Lord God, the God of the nation of Israel. But during the latter parts of Solomon's reign, the nation began to drift. And they began to worship the gods of the surrounding areas. And so king after king followed, each one becoming increasingly more perverse, more wicked. And it's into this context, Elijah, a man of God, appears to challenge King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. Now, considering all the wicked kings before him, when we, we listened to, to Ahab's resume, and it was Ahab did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him, and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. This guy was corrupt and wicked. 
His wife was worse. (laughs) Queen Jezebel's people were avid worshipers of Baal, an, an idol believed to be the God who provided rain and good harvests. Baal worship was characterized by immorality and cult prostitution. Jezebel hated the God of Israel. She wanted the worship of the Lord God eliminated, and so she began to systematically kill off the prophets of the Lord. It was a dangerous time to be a follower of the Lord God, to speak for God as as Elijah was called to do. Nonetheless, we see Elijah just plunging headfirst into the conflict. The first thing he does is announce announce that it's not going to rain for the next few years. What you think about was a direct challenge to their storm god, Baal. <laughs> the Lord then moved Elijah out of harm's way for over three years and by sending him to a place where his faith was strengthened, where God provided for him, where he did miracles. Three and a half years later, back on the scene, Elijah comes back and he challenges the prophets of Baal to a duel, to an ultimate smackdown on a place called Mount Carmel. And so Elijah commands Ahab, the king, and said, hey, bring, bring all the people out to the mountain. We're going to have a contest. And so Ahab's like, yeah, let's do it. And so he invites all of the, all of the prophets of Baal, all the prophets of Asherah, which was a, a fertility goddess. And he invites all the people to Mount Carmel, and Elijah stands there, and he issues a challenge. And the challenge is we're, gonna, we're each going to build an altar for a sacrifice and we're going to cut up a bowl and put it on the altars and you call on your God Baal and I'll call on the name of the Lord and whoever answers, whoever brings fire to the sacrifice, we know he's the true God. And they're like, yeah, we're in. But here's what I want, here's what I want us to see. Elaborate prayer doesn't always lead to extraordinary results. Elaborate prayer doesn't always lead to extraordinary results. It matters where you place your faith. See, 450 prophets of Baal to one prophet of the living Lord God. 450 to one. Not only that, but they had home field advantage. Mount Carmel was believed to be Baal's dwelling place. Baal was the one who sent the lightning. Of course he could light the altar fire. They got to go first. They got to choose the best bull. And if need be, they got to pray longer. They had every advantage. So that morning, the challenge was on. And from morning to noon, 450 prophets of Baal called on the name of their God. And nothing happened. So they prayed some more. And they prayed a little harder. And they prayed a little louder. And they started to dance. And then they started the dance and then they started to pull out their knives and they began to cut themselves as a sacrifice to their god, Baal. And after a while, Elijah starts to do some biblical trash talk. Hey, why don't you shout louder? Why don't you pray a little harder? You know, maybe your god's deep in thought. Maybe, maybe you need to get his attention. Maybe, you know, he might be busy. He might be on a road trip. In actuality, the, the, in the... <clears throat> The original language here, Elijah says, you know, he must be in the bathroom doing his thing. Shout a little louder. Dance a little harder. And you think about it, Elijah had to be a tough dude to be trash-talking 450 guys with knives. (laughs) 
But they started whooping and hollering and dancing and cutting themselves even more. They had faith in Baal, knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that Baal would answer. You see, they were elaborate in their prayer. They were sincere, but they were sincerely wrong because they had placed their faith in a false god. In fact, the text says in verse 29, but there was no response, no one answered, no one paid attention, triple negative, pretty emphatic. (laughs) They were met with silence. After all their dancing and praying was done and they lay exhausted on the ground, all that could be heard were the flies buzzing around the bull sacrifice. Their elaborate ceremony fell on deaf ears because effective prayer comes out of a trust in an extraordinary God. Elijah, seeing that they're done, quietly builds his own altar to the Lord and with 12 stones. 12 stones signifying the, 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 12, <clears throat> the 12 tribes of Israel, a nation that was now divided. He digs a trench around it, and after putting the sacrifice on it, he's like, you know, let's, let's raise the stakes a little bit. He tells the guys, hey, let's bring four barrels of water and dump it over the, over the altar. So they do, they get the water, they pour it over the altar, and it's dripping wet. He's like, yeah, you know what, that's not enough. Bring four more barrels. And so they brought four more barrels and they dump that over the sacrifice and the altar and the wood and the wood is is drenched. And Elijah looks at it and is like, "Hmm. nope, still not enough. Four more barrels. And so they bring four more barrels of water. They dump it over the altar and and it's dripping, soaking wet. the, The trench is filled with water. And then this is what the Bible says. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. And the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil. It licked up the water in the trench. It was a consuming fire. And when all the people saw this, they fell down and worshiped the Lord. He is God. The Lord, he is God. It was an amazing moment for Elijah. Not only that, but the prophets of Baal were wiped out. And once again, rain fell on the land that same day. (laughs) You see, Elijah's prayer had been a simple one, but it was a prayer of faith. Elijah prayed with confidence that he was in the will of the living God. No pleading, no screaming, no shouting, no frenzied dancing, no empty repetition, just a plainly spoken request that God would prove himself to all that he alone is Lord. And as a result of this great victory, Elijah, he expected something. He expected that Ahab and Jezebel would be shaken out of their unbelief and they too would turn to God. Revival was a coming. But we read in chapter 19, verse 1, now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, 
May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. And so what does this victorious man of faith do? This guy who had just had had this amazing day and amazing, saw God do amazing things. In verse 3, we read Elijah was afraid and he ran for his life. He heads south. He goes deep into the wilderness and into the desert alone until he can find some shade under what amounted to a bush. And it's here, Elijah, a real person just like us, prays a very real, honest-to-God prayer. Lord, I've had enough. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. I am no better than anyone before me. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. Here's the point. God becomes extraordinarily small when we lose perspective. I didn't say it was a good prayer. It was misguided, but it was a very real prayer. Elijah is telling God what he thinks at that moment. His heart was discouraged. He's frustrated. He's ready to quit. But we think about the guy on Mount Carmel, and we think about the guy now, and it's like, what happened? The NIV translation says Elijah was afraid. It can be translated simply, he saw. He saw Jezebel. He saw Jezebel, and rather than remembering that the Lord was working behind the scenes, he lifted Jezebel higher in his thoughts. His perspective became distorted. Fear replaced faith. Jezebel in his mind had become very large and his God very small. You see, when we get discouraged, don't we tend to do the same thing, don't we? We kind of blow things out of proportion, make broad generalizations. You know, all they care about is he always, she never, I'm, I'm the only one who ever. And he gave Jezebel the upper hand by allowing her to become too large in his thoughts, so he ran. Secondly, Elijah was tired. I mean, Mount Carmel had, been, had taken a tremendous physical and emotional toll. He was exhausted. No one is exempt from the physical and emotional laws of life. When you become weary, you, you lose courage. You, you begin to lose heart. You think that nothing is going to go right. His perspective became distorted. He was tired. And thirdly, I believe Elijah overestimated himself. He believed the contest on Mount Carmel was going to change everything around and he would be the man. But one clue to his high expectations is his comment, I'm I'm no better than those before me. And it implies that he had thought at one time that he was better. Elijah had apparently set some, some tough goals and some extremely high expectations of himself. You know, I know others in the past have failed. Not me. I'm good. I'm the man. I'm God's man. I'll get the job done. You see, Elijah expected to sit under that bush and die when he didn't measure up to his own standards. When things didn't work out as he planned, he wanted to quit. But God, in his mercy and grace, showed compassion and brought him through a process of restoration. 
as we see that, <clears throat> and we see that God hears our honest prayers and he responds with extraordinary grace. The first thing he did was provide Elijah further rest and refreshment instead of telling him to, to suck it up and snap out of it. God knew the medicine Elijah needed was refreshment. God didn't give him a sermon or shower him with shame. He graciously provided for him. But the Lord also provided clarification. You see, when we're emotionally strung out, it's, it's easy to think that everyone's against us when we no longer have any emotional margins. God can seem distant. Well, after regaining his strength, verse 8 tells us that Elijah traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached this mountain, Mount Horeb. Mount Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai where, where God had revealed himself on several occasions. God addresses Elijah in verse 9. Elijah, what are you doing here? And see, but if God wasn't asking for information because he wanted, he wanted to provoke a response, and Elijah's response reveals all the false ideas that were going on in his heart and mind at that time. And he replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. And his mind is filled with all of these false beliefs. God, I've done all these things for you. I deserve what I want. I deserve my expectations to be met. I've been beating my head against the wall, serving you, Lord, doing my best, and, and everything's falling apart. What are you doing? Are you doing anything at all? And the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. God decided that Elijah needed to rediscover who the living Lord God really is. Elijah, still in his funk, refuses to come out of his literal and figurative hole. And the Bible tells us that while Elijah was in, huddled in that cave feeling sorry for himself, a, a violent rushing wind swept across the ridges. It, it reared through the canyons and over the mountains, stones and boulders came loose and were crushed. But the Lord was not in the wind. Then an earthquake ripped through the entire area and the whole mountain shook, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. This was followed by this furious fire that consumed the mountain and I believe Elijah could feel the blistering heat, but the Lord wasn't in the fire either. And that's when it happened. When the wind was gone and when the earth stopped trembling and the fire died, there was this utter stillness on top of that mountain. And in the intensity of that awesome silence came a gentle whisper, the voice of God. In verse 13 it says, When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. That quiet whisper of God was so holy, so special, that Elijah covered himself. And when he heard that soft voice of God, he got out of his cave of self-pity. He, he was awestruck by the revelation of God's holy and majestic word, his whisper. He needed to come out of the cave to rediscover who God really is. 
You see, he needed to learn and be reminded that God was with him through, through the great times, through the good times, when things were going well, and God was with him through the struggles and even when times were tough. You see, God doesn't keep us from going through difficult times, but he does promise to walk with us through them. And despite his current funk, hearing God's whisper reminded Elijah that God was still in control. In that whisper, the Lord was clarifying to Elijah that he indeed was working powerfully, but not everything would be done with pyrotechnics and and hurricanes and earthquakes. There's more to God than wind and fire. You see, God was working behind the scenes in his own way, in his own time. And the truth is, God may be doing a thousand things in your life right now you don't even know. You see, while Elijah was despairing of the future, God was planning for it. And we read at the end of the chapter, two different kings were being raised up, one to punish, one to purify Israel. There was to be a new prophet who would proclaim God's truth in greater power than even Elijah. God reveals to Elijah that there's 7,000 men throughout the, throughout the land who were faithful to God and had never bowed to Baal. Elijah wasn't alone. You see, Elijah was part of the plan, but he wasn't the whole deal. And here's what we need, I think, to, to take from all of this, these stories, and that is our greatest need is not more of me. Our greatest need is not more stuff for me. Our greatest need is to know more of God and to let God have more of me, of us. You see, Elijah in his despair and confusion cried out to God, God, just, just let me die. I'm done. I quit. And God answered that prayer by providing the greatest thing he could give Elijah. God gave him himself. You see, God revealed himself to Elijah in a way that I think expressed affection and relationship. I, can whis- I can't whisper to a hundred people but I can whisper the one. And I believe through that whisper, God was communicating to Elijah, I'm here, I'm with you. Elijah, I'm for you. You see, our problem is we want to feel the earthquake. We want to feel the fire. We want to see the wind. We want the big demonstration. We want the spectacular answers to prayer. God says, that's not always where you're going to see me. Listen for my gentle whisper. I entered my junior year of college expecting to do great things, praying that I would be extraordinary, above, above average. And I woke, up on Sunday, on <clears throat> I woke up one Saturday morning during that semester and I barely had the strength to get out of bed. See, during that week, I didn't know it. <clears throat> and that night in particular, um, I'd been bleeding internally. And I'd lost a lot of blood. I was anemic. And as a result of some of the bugs I picked up in Africa and some of the medications that I was taking, it caused a, a bleeding ulcer that put me in the hospital for a week almost set me back an entire semester because I'd missed a week of class and I could no longer stay up and and I was tired all the time and weak. 
I began to get behind in my classes and my dreams for that semester, my dreams of all the great things that I was going to do were crushed. See, one night in the dark by myself, it, it just, it all came to a head. I was angry. I was angry at God, and I, and I lashed out at him. I had prayed that he would make me extraordinary, and yet all my plans had failed. All my expectations had been crushed. And I sat in my chair in the dark, and I felt very much alone with my pride. But you see, God was doing something in me. I just hadn't realized it. Because these weren't my plans. This, this wasn't my expectation. And I, I felt like Elijah under that bush. And I said, God, I, I'm done. I'm done with this. I'm done with you. I'm, I'm gone. <laughs> As I cried out to God in, in my misery, the phone rang. <laughs> it, was my, it was my mom and dad. They were calling to check up on me. And we talked. I didn't tell them what was going on, but they could sense something was going on. And I'll never forget, <clears throat> as my mom, as we were saying goodbye, my mom said one last thing. She said, you know, Jonathan, God loves you. And I hung up the phone. And I sat in my chair. <laughs> it was like a... It's like God had thrown a, a bucket of cold water on my, on my misery and pity and pride. I had been placing all my worth on what I was doing and who I was. I wanted to lead this hurricane, the lightning and thunder consuming fire type of existence. It was my expectation. Surely God would want that. Instead, God came to me a whisper and said, my love's enough. Jonathan, my love is enough. All I want is you, child. I have a different plan for you, and it's not all about you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. You see, I had placed my worth in, in what I was doing. God reminded me that my worth is rooted in the gospel, the good news story of Jesus' outrageous love. As I wrap it up here, I'm going to ask the worship team to come out. I just want to share what I, what I learned, and here's what I think Elijah learned as well through this whole experience. Our, our greatest need is for more of God. Not more of me, not more stuff for me. My greatest need is more of God to know him and, and to lean into him. You see, prayers shouldn't be measured or mechanical. It's, it's, not, it's not a ritual to make God happy. It, it doesn't have to be mundane. It's not just a means to an end. Prayer is talking to God and desiring most of all to know him, to know more of him. Letting God have more of me. And you see, when we have more of him, when we know him, when our personal expectations are met or not, whether we understand the way he's working or not, or whether like, we feel like he's doing anything, we, <clears throat> we still have all we need. We have him. You see, Jesus asked, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? 
If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? You see, as a good father, the best gift he can give any one of us is himself. The Bible makes it clear, make the pursuit of your good father the primary function of your life, to know him and to make him known. This morning, what is the deepest root of your joy? What is the deepest root of your joy? What God gives you or what God is to you? You see, God graciously guides us into a greater realization that our ultimate need is more, more of his ways, more of him. And as we begin this series, as we talk about prayer, maybe that's where my honest to God prayer needs to start. Father, more of you and less of me. Father, more of you, less of Jonathan. Let's pray. Father, I pray that prayer. More of you, Father. Less of me, less of us. Father, may we know you more. And through that knowing, submit and give and yield our lives to you, even as those who were baptized this morning committed to saying, I am following Jesus no matter what. There's no turning back. I'm committed. I've put my stake in the ground. More of you, God, less of me. More of you, Father, and less of Jonathan, less of... And Father, through that prayer, Lord, help us to hear your whisper. To hear your gentle whisper that reminds us that you alone are God, that you are working behind the scenes, you are working with us and for us, you are with us. And may our response continue to be, Father, more of you and less of me. More of you and less of me. I love you too. In Jesus' name, amen.